to the podcast Against Disease, brought to you by Humanity Against Disease. We are sans Kavita Chapla today. She has been swallowed by the depths of the Johns Hopkins Bayview Hospital, but she will be back. She's not been eaten by wolves or otherwise removed permanently from service. But we do have a guest here today, and I'm going to try very hard to pronounce your name correctly. We've got Dr. Panagis Galeatsatos. So, and I've had years of practice, so no worries. Uh, Panagis Galeatsatos. Wow. Yeah. So again, rolls off the tongue. I have a tutorial if you ever want to borrow it, <laughs> but my patients fondly call me Dr. G. I um, may stick with that this time. That's perfectly fine. The Greek speaking patients, they can say Galeatsatos perfectly fine. Yeah. yeah. And for those of you not familiar with Baltimore, we're actually situated about a block from Greek town. So it's not uncommon to meet Greek speaking people around here. Very true. So we're here today to talk about smoking cessation. And I guess first, if you want to introduce yourself, you've been a fixture in Baltimore your entire life, it sounds like. Yeah, no, I am um, born and raised in Baltimore City. Grew up actually in that block away from here in, yeah. in the Greek town area. And other than going to college for four years, I've come back for med school, for residency training and fellowship and so forth. And mm-hmm. now being faculty at Johns Hopkins, it's great. I get to do medicine, but also serve the community at the same time. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I believe you brought me here is because of the smoking cessation conversations that we'll have. The hat that I wear, one of many, because it's an academic hospital, so we wear a lot of hats, yeah. but I'm uh, the director for the tobacco treatment clinic over at Hopkins. I run a CME course for tobacco treatment specialists. And then we do a lot of community engagement running free tobacco treatment clinics in the city, especially in the housing units where they're trying to go smoke free. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah, it seems like there's been a lot of big moves in the world of tobacco in just in the last couple of decades. I mean, there's been a lot more education, and now we've got these other factors on the scene with, with vaping and all this. So I'm interested to hear what you have to say about how we can help people get a little bit healthier and not fall into these destructive habits. So the first question I had for you is, so you see a lot of patients and a lot of providers. What role does tobacco and nicotine use play in your patients' lives? Yeah, no, and that's a fantastic question. And I imagine, you know, the the way I approach a patient now, so I have a little bit of a bias since I run a tobacco treatment clinic. I mm-hmm. see patients, usually their number one concern is get me off of tobacco. Mm-hmm. I say this because when I used to be a resident and intern, my tobacco cessation strategies were almost non-existent. Mm-hmm. Call a quit line, called it a day. Yeah. Checked it off on the box, gave them some counseling, when in reality, I just kind of shifted the responsibility off of my shoulders and put it onto them. Yeah. And now I had kind of a eureka moment going through a variety of training in order to better understand tobacco treatment and tobacco dependence. And now the way I look at patients when they come to me to discuss coming off tobacco is we think of it as a chronic disease no different than high blood pressure, diabetes. Mm. And we discuss a chronic disease model to help them through getting off of tobacco. So when I talk about tobacco to patients and uh, their tobacco dependence and their nicotine dependence, it is some of the most interesting conversations that we get into because they tell us how cigarettes, how tobacco has been influential for them in their lives. For some, it's been their best friend. It's been there when their wives have left. It's been there when their children have passed away. It's been there when they lost their job. It's always been there. And so they live in this ambivalence of a world where they recognize they need to stop, but they also can't see themselves without something that's been there with them for decades and decades. And so that's one of the first things we try to address is what role tobacco has played for them. And usually what it centers almost around is, 
what triggers them to smoke? Yeah. No different than I talk to an asthmatic about what triggers your shortness of breath, yeah. right? And your asthmatic can tell you this, right? And their strategy ultimately is like, I try to avoid all that. But for patients who smoke, the properties of cigarettes and the nicotine especially being a great anxiolytic, for instance, these triggers they sometimes just can't get away from, right? Yeah. Stress, and they always bring up stress is a huge part, or secondhand smoke exposure, or I, I like to do it after a coffee, right? They've conditioned themselves to smoking with certain instances and taking two unrelated topics and suddenly bringing them together. So coffee and smoking, why would it be something of the same? But it goes through the conditional process like Pavlov's dog to some extent. Yeah. So you go through this and find how they smoke and why they smoke and when they smoke, and I take all that into account because in the back of my mind, I'm creating an individualized plan to help them get off of cigarettes. Mm -hmm. And I take all of that into account. The kind of fancier term for that is smoking topography. But that's what we live and breathe when we're at the smoking cessation clinic. But some of the greatest stories I've ever been told is really how smoking is centered on their lives because smoking's always been there for their biggest changes of lives. And so it always goes into these stories. Some of them are heartbreaking. Some of them are... It's hard to digest, but they always talk about how smoking has helped them through this. And you have to take that into reality because you're battling something that has been always a part of their lives and we're doing our best to try to take it out of their lives now. Yeah. And in psychiatry, we talk a lot, a lot about coping skills. And what I'm hearing is reminding me a lot of that, that for people who use tobacco, it sounds like it's a really central coping skill for them. And of course, it's linked also to deep breathing by necessity, which is a great coping skill. Yeah. So it is. it sounds like a really tangled situation. It is. And I, I'll tell you one way that has always been well-received when I'm there, because when we go into these types of conversations, at least from an internal medicine doctor perspective and pulmonary, they don't expect that out of a doctor. Like when I ask them what brain of cigarettes they smoke, and they're like, oh, Newports. I'm like, all right, what type? The fours, the slims, the 100s. And they're like, whoa, that, you know a lot about cigarettes. Mm. But when we dive into this, it's it's always interesting to see them talk about it as if they've never talked about it before. Mm. And so the what I always try to tell them is, you know, I, I'm not your mother, I'm not your priest, there's no judgment. Yeah. And I'm pro-smoker, just anti-smoking. So tell me as much as you want to tell me so I can help you mm. devise the best plan with this. And then the reason why our first meetings take about 60 minutes is because they're unleashing all of the coping mechanisms, how they use cigarettes constantly in their, in their lives. And it's, it's actually rather rewarding as a physician because you get to know them in their most intimate moments of how and when they've used cigarettes. And, but from my standpoint, too, it helps with the chronic disease model of trying to get them ultimately off of the cigarettes. Yeah. And that seems like just a huge departure from like what I did as an intern as well, where I like to think I was at some level of sophistication in terms of trying to assess their motivation to quit and these kinds of things, but I never really got deep into their reasons why they did it in the first place or like understand its place in their lives. But it does sound like, I, mean, I, I read that Power of Habit and a lot of these other popular press books and the idea that you can't just cut out a habit, you have to replace it with something else. It sounds like the more you know about the role it plays, the better you're going to be able to find reasonable substitutes instead of just waving your hands and saying, like, go chew some gum or something. Right. Oh, so very spot on. And also, if we do that, we minimize what cigarettes have meant to them, mm -hmm. right? So if we say, all right, you, you like to smoke when you're stressed, how about you just take a walk? Yeah. The challenge with there is, while it is a habit, it's more of a compulsion, right? It's a habit with emotion. Yeah. 
And if we don't recognize that, we're trivializing to them what they're doing. And a lot of times that can ruin a relationship with that patient. And so they they won't trust you. They, they're like, all right, you're just you know doing what every other doctor does. You have to build a unique relationship because mm-hmm. patients who smoke, they want to quit. Every single one of them, at least patients I've had, maybe it's a bit of a yeah. bias, they want to quit. But they also want to feel like they have someone who understands what they're going through. Even if, and that experience and that understanding doesn't mean you've had to have been a smoker yourself, but you're a human being and you recognize the science that nicotine has had on the patients, right? Interacting with their mesolimbic system and rooted into their emotional components of survival and so forth. So take all that to account. You know, I always, regardless of whatever comorbidity we're trying to tackle, whatever disease, know it's gravity, know it's impact, right? No oncologist will look at a stage four cancer and say, I will cure it. No, they'll talk about the strategies they'll lay out, mm. chip away at it and get to it. I do the same thing with every patient who smokes. I learn their smoking phenotype. I tell them realistically what I think I can accomplish. I always use the analogy, David and Goliath. Goliath is your nicotine addiction. You're David, you got the willpower and our best weapons are a slingshot. Mm. So we need time in order for it to work. And that's the reality of paint. And that only comes because you get to know them, right? You learn everything about them and you devise motivational interviewing and strategies in addition to supplementing it with pharmacological interventions to help them amplify their willpower so they can quit. Yeah. And it sounds like this is a great move away from like a paternalistic approach. I think that's what a lot of people have come to expect. I know like I have family members who have smoked cigarettes and it was something that was like a fixture of my whole life growing up. I know that it's not easy for people to to quit. And I think that there must have been hundreds of physicians and other providers who were just like, cut that out. <laughs> yeah, no. And you bring up a point that really I'm guilty of it as well. And when I think about it, it always bothers me. You know, we, we think of smoking as just solely a behavior. And the action maybe of starting to smoking, I agree, right? Something motivated you, you didn't and so forth. But that addictive property of it mm-hmm. and where it interacts in the mesolimbic system, right? In the ventral tegmental area with your nucleus accumbens. I mean, the powerful signals it sends off is one that's hard to walk away from, especially if you're around triggers. I see all this because when we say just quit, call a hotline, we don't do that for any other disease. I don't look at a person with diabetes and say, you should quit having diabetes. Yeah. And call it a day. No, you manage them. You take their disease. You add some chronicity of interventions to it, and you help them through that path. And you chip away. You don't try to turn that A1C of 16% to eat overnight. You chip away. First strategy is to 14 and so forth. It's the same thing I do with all my patients who smoke. I don't shift the responsibility off the afflicted onto them. I shift it onto the system, and I surround them with resources. They want to use a quit line, great, but they're going to use it in conjunction to what we're offering too because that's the chronic disease model. That's what it means to be a doctor-patient relationship. And I think the more patients recognize that, it's unbelievable of how they'll begin to open up to you, right? Because a lot of the patients will come with already destructive strategies to begin to ruin your plans. Like, oh, I've tried that. It didn't work. Great. Why didn't it work? Tell me why it didn't work. And then what you find is just misinformation of how they were using a pharmacological agent or didn't give it the amount of time and so forth. So I think it's one of the most rewarding things to do because when you see that patient finally quit after nine months of chipping away at it, mm-hmm. it's one of the most rewarding things I've ever seen in medicine. Yeah, that's got to be a huge win because like so many chronic diseases, this is something that the treatment asks so much more of the patient. That's what struck me about modern internal medicine uh, based on my limited experience with it is that 
we've moved so far away from take this pill and carry on. It's like, you got to do this, 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 and this, and then your outcomes will likely improve, but it's not going to be easy. But it seems like that means we do have to spend more time and energy building up these relationships. And that's one challenge I was never able to find a good answer for is how you're, you're able to accomplish that in an environment where there's so much pressure to move quickly and yeah. throughput so many patients. It sounds like you're not doing this in the setting of a 15-minute visit. You said 60 minutes is your general intake. Yeah. No, and I, and I completely understand that. I have a bias in a sense of that I've carved out my own independent clinic solely to see patients who smoke. And so I am a lot at that time. And what I would say to other providers, other healthcare professionals is, if you know you have a patient who smoke, the next time they come to clinic, that 15 minutes is all you're going to talk about. No different than if they had cancer, if they had high blood pressure, you devote as much time. This is a one great thing that we can do for them in order to get them off of a comorbidity that is linked to almost every disease process we are aware of. And so when I get the patients that come in and we dive into how they smoke and what they smoke and when they smoke... The time we use it within the clinic is important, but the challenge I have with tobacco dependence is unlike blood pressure, I don't have a sphygma manometer in their house. Yeah. So the chronic disease model, the first part of it are chronic touch points. So every patient who comes to me, I make it clear, twice a week, I'm going to reach out to you. Mm. You tell me how you want me to reach out to you. Text message, email, cell phone. Mm. And when they say text messaging, I love it because I'm like, oh, good. I can put you on my blast and I'll send it out. <laughs> but what I ask of them is, again, I remind them there's no judgment. What I'm looking for is seeing how you're reacting to our medications, how you're reacting to our interventions, and how you're still smoking. And I expect you just to tell me like, hey, Dr. G, I smoked today three cigarettes, one after coffee, one because of stress and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I log all those interactions and about after two weeks, I start looking to make sure there's no side effects of any medications. About after four weeks, I start looking to see if there's been a change in their smoking topography, especially their smoking mechanics. When you come to my clinic, I really go over the mechanics of how they smoke, right? Generally, how deep is your puff? Generally, how deep is your inhalation? How many puffs per cigarette, right? Because those smoking mechanics, especially if we've implemented a pharmacological agent, those things begin to change because they find... I don't need to smoke this entire cigarette to get what I needed, right? And so when I get that text message from that patient who says, oh my God, Dr. G, I just did two puffs and I put it out, not even thinking about it. I wasn't even conscious about it. I just didn't need any more of it. I'm like, that's the medication working. That's what its job is meant to do. But I only get that information because I reach out to them. And I know we all have busy schedules. I get it. And I don't sit back and say, I have an easy solution to make your time more efficient to reach out to them. I don't know what it is. What drives me is I know it's the right thing to do. If I'm really invested in getting them to quit smoking, it is the right thing to do. What I would ideally love when people come to my tobacco treatment course, one of my sessions at the last 30 minutes is how to get a hospital to pay for what you're doing, Yeah. right? The RVUs, because sometimes that could be a motivation. I mean, we all have limited time. I get it. But I promise you, when you have constant touch points, it will work on your patients versus those who you just send off with a quit line or take this medication or good luck, constantly touching base with them helps them mm -hmm. get off of smoking. A lot of it just because it helps reaffirm your message. Yeah, I've found a lot of luck with that approach with my outpatients in psychiatry is it, it allows you to convey that you do care about their problem when you're not billing them for it, which yeah. I think is humanizing. And I think it's it 
shows patients that we care about them as people and that we're not just trying to you know, run them through a machine to grind out the RVUs, which for people outside of medicine, RVUs, I don't even remember what it stands for. I don't either. I'm sorry. It's a billable unit such that you're supposed to try and do things that the hospital and insurance can, the hospital can bill insurance for so that the hospital gets more money so we can keep the lights on and we can have the nice lobby and all these sorts of things. But at the end of the day, a lot of the things that we would like to be doing for patients don't translate to high productivity numbers, which can be a bit of a struggle that we have to deal with. But what I will say is, and you bring up a lot of logistic points, right, that I know we all constantly struggle. But I, I promise you, if you can go back to your hospital administration, talk about you know, the cost effectiveness of a tobacco cessation clinic and having someone full time to be able to touch base with the patients, even if it's a full time conversation, but it could be a part-time position for that person. I mean, the the reward we get when patients stop smoking because it improves readmission rates, right? They go down. Yeah. It improves diabetic care, right? Their A1Cs fall, blood pressure care. My number two uh, referrals to my clinic are plastic surgeons because they want their surgical outcomes to improve. Makes sense. And I'm like, this is great. So everyone will jump on board for this. You know, what I will walk you guys through today is recognizing how to make it as effective as possible. But the most important thing I can't underscore is you have to be patient because mm. once you understand the gravity of the addiction, right, almost every patient I see, the analogy give them, it's like a stage four cancer. Like I'm not going to cure this overnight and none of my agents will do it overnight. We need time to chip away with this. But the reward I think is one of the best things that to me reaffirms why I became a doctor and you know, in the patients and the people, they see it too. They always appreciate knowing someone is there fighting along with them. Yeah. And it's, it just seems like it can be so transformative. Like you say, it's, it comes up in every single organ system, every, every possible disease you can be confronting, it seems can be worsened if there's nicotine on board. Right. So this is a really important problem to address. Agreed. And, and I think one of the things one of the messages I hope we're able to get out today is just how addictive nicotine is, which you alluded to. I'm not familiar. I, I could, I'd have to pull up the specific studies, but I've seen like charts and graphs indicating that the relative addictive, physically addictive nature of nicotine is greater than pretty much anything else out there. Like, so, so two things. It is, mm-hmm. I agree with you, more addictive than any of the other addictive agents that we think of from opioids to cocaine and so forth. But the other thing is, how it's delivered. And I think this is where I sit back and talk to people about the anatomy of a cigarette. Mm -hmm. What I love is, you know, I get med students, we talk, or even residents, they can easily tell me the construct of a bacteria or a virus. No one knows what the heck a cigarette is composed of. Mm -hmm. And that's important because the cigarette, the design of it is, and I will use the word beautiful because of what it's meant to do, it does it really well. Mm -hmm. How it delivers nicotine in a very enhanced way Mm -hmm. And how it gets it into the person to make them addicted, right? So to make that addict, you need a high concentration of nicotine to deliver to you in a brief amount of time. Once you get all that, it's more likely that you'll become addicted. Hmm. And so the cigarette itself, right, puts nicotine, depending on the property from the tobacco leaf, the tobacco plant, is it the leaf or the stem that's being put into the cigarette? That also is what drives a lot of the cigarette prices. So the more expensive ones tend to use more tobacco leaf versus tobacco stem is used in the cheaper brands like USA Slims and so forth. So the cigarette, right, the porosity of the cigarette paper plays a role in how much nicotine gets delivered. 
the ventilation holes that are put on that yellow tip of the cigarette where the cigarette smoker casually will put their finger over to close it. So once you've closed those ventilation holes, every puff you take, there's less air going into the cigarette. If there was more air going in, it dilutes the nicotine, right, the mm. concentration. So when they put their fingers over the ventilation holes, that's why they're cleverly designed where they are so they can do that. The nicotine concentration with each puff goes up exponentially. Huh. They take it in, more likely to become addicted. The properties of the tar of the cigarette with the heavy metals and the ammonia and the heat that you add, it creates a demethylation process to the nicotine to allow it to cross the alveoli blood barrier exponentially faster and the blood-brain barrier exponentially faster, getting into there. And the other beautiful thing that the cigarette's doing is that it's delivering it through the lungs. Mm -hmm. So going through the lungs means you go right into the heart, right into the brain bypasses the liver where nicotine is metabolized. The CYP2A6 is the biggest player of the metabolism of nicotine. That's actually what makes so many nicotine replacement therapies so inferior, right? Mm -hmm. The patch, the gum, the lozenges, the nasal spray, they all go through the venous system, which then goes to your liver, gets broken down into a variety of other nicotine metabolites like codeine. And then they have no effect by the time you get to the brain. While well, cigarettes not only take nicotine, they chemically enhance it. And so the person who becomes addicted to nicotine gets it done by a, a device that is well intended to do that addictive properties to nicotine. So that's why you got to know your enemy and who we're up against and then what we have to offer to combat that. Yeah. Not a lot, but... Yeah, and it's fascinating. We were talking about this a little bit before we popped the recording on, and I had no idea. I mean, it does make physiologic sense now that you talk about it thinking through the circulation and all that but i'd never really put my mind to like why it makes such a difference that it's hitting at the lung interface and not somewhere else i guess i figured it was just culturally traditional or something like that but there's so much more to it huh? yeah i mean incidentally the the way we smoke we've never smoked like this before in this uh, concept with a cigarette but while it may have potentially have been incidental how cigarettes came to be in the late 19th century the enhancement of the cigarette over time has always been purposeful. Hmm. Even adding menthol, I'll take two seconds to give you some insight about menthol. Hmm. It is great for a variety of reasons. Most people think of it as, oh, it, it reduces your cough receptors. That's true to some extent. If you smoke for the first time and it's an enjoyable experience, you're more likely to continue that. Hmm. But the other sinister reason why menthol is added is the demographics around who smoked predominantly in the 40s and 50s was predominantly white over African-American. What they tended to find, the tobacco companies, because they had some of the best scientists and actually physicians working for them, what they found it was there was a demographic of people who had a gene called the THR292 gene. Okay. If you had it, you had defective nicotine receptors. You could smoke, nicotine would go there, wouldn't do a single thing. Really? If you add menthol to these cigarettes... And, they, and you have the THR292 gene, it'll go and stabilize the nicotine receptor. So now suddenly you will take in the nicotine and you'll become addicted. The demographic of people who had that gene were African-Americans. Wow. So the huge target of menthol to African-Americans was mainly because they recognized this gene that created nicotine receptors to be defective clustered in that demographic. So we had to target them in order to improve the amount of smoking addicts in that demographic. So... Again, know your enemy. We got to know the people who are devising these cigarettes and these these devices that are killing our patients. Because if you don't know your enemy that well, then it's hard to know how you'll appropriately combat them. Or more importantly, how to recognize that a lot of our weapons are 
somewhat inferior initially. Over time, they will work, but it takes time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I had no idea. And that's that's a special kind of evil to develop these things and put that much thought into it. I guess it's there's a certain naive idealism that's like, oh, why would people do something like that? But there's sounds like there's all kinds of profit motive and and that hopefully that would be motivational to some of the people trying to quit knowing that they've been like willfully exploited and there are people out there deliberately trying to worsen their lives by by developing these sophisticated yeah. technologies. And, and for those listeners who are trying to quit or you know family members who are trying to quit, while this could be motivation as well, added to one of the many thousands of reasons why they want to quit, hopefully today you'll go to your healthcare professional as well who can be armed with a little bit of more insight into how to help them devise a great plan. We already discussed learning the person who smokes, right? To me, that's like learning the smoking phenotype. Yeah. Do you mind if I jump in a little bit into the pharmacological agents we yeah, have? Yeah, we can always jump around. No Perfect. So I, I get a person who smokes. We go over their smoking phenotype. I try my best to understand how they smoke, why they smoke, when they smoke. I always ask them, when did you start smoking? Usually if they started smoking at a young age, a lot of the neuroanatomical changes that happen because of cigarettes tends to be permanent. Hmm. So the rates of relapse are rather high in these patients. So I, I take into account all these predictive measures for both when they'll quit and chances of relapse. Yeah. And then what I discuss is the three touch points for a chronic disease model. And being a pulmonologist, I still playbook a little bit out of the asthma and COPD world. So the first part is touch points. And I talk to them. I tell them each at every clinic, I will reach out to you twice a week. What's the best method? For my patients who like phone calls, bless their heart, I'll do a phone call. But I always try to set a little bit more time aside. And then other patients usually love the text messages or emails, and we'll do that. And then I go into, if I think it's appropriate for pharmacological interventions, we'll go over that. Mm -hmm. And so I dichotomize the medications that exist into two groups, controllers and relievers, kind of like how a lung doctor talks about a controller inhaler and a reliever or rescue inhaler. Uh So the controllers, there's three types. There is varenicline, your Chantex, bupropion or your Welbutrin, Mm -hmm. and then your nicotine replacement therapy, specifically the transdermal patch. Mm -hmm. And all of them, what they're intended to do is to be taken every day and for them to begin to chip away the nicotine receptors, either block them or take them down overall. And knowing that a controller alone won't get at the initial cravings people will still have. It Mm. can, but it takes time. And depending on the smoking phenotype and the smoking aggressiveness of a person, I tell them you usually may not notice a change until about a month in and your cravings may take about six months for them to subside overall. I see this because when you give them that realistic understanding, to them, that makes sense. Like it hits home, like that makes sense. That's why none of these medications ever worked. A lot of it is just because there was a temporal bias. They stopped it too soon. So I tell them we need to keep at it for this amount of time. And then we have those touch points to make sure things are working. But those are the three agents I tend to use. And I go over if they've used it before, side effects. All three are great. All three are great. There are Varenicline does have a little bit more superiority versus Welbutrin um, versus uh, nicotine replacement therapy. But those three agents compared to placebo are fantastic. Mm -hmm. So I talk with them what makes the most sense. Also, FYI, for your listeners out there, Chantex, Varenicline, will be going generic in 2020. So keep that in mind. That's exciting. Yeah, so we can help with the cost effectiveness of the medication. So we start those medications if we deem it appropriate. Mm -hmm. I would say, again, the bias I have having a smoking cessation clinic, 
I usually get the most aggressive smokers, so I usually do start a controller on them. And then the other group of medications are your nicotine replacement therapies that are intended to give you a quick blast of nicotine. Mm -hmm. So these are my relievers or rescuers, however you want to think of them. But these are medications that I tell every patient to try to use when they're having cravings, especially if they're having it around triggers. So these are your gum, your lozenges, there's a nasal spray, and there's even an inhaler. The inhaler, I will say, big asterisk, there's a lot of pharmacies in Baltimore that I've ordered it for because my patients really like the concept of it. I can't find it. Like for the most part, a lot of, I think there was one manufacturer and and that manufacturer seems to have stopped making it. So it's Mm -hmm. rather hard to get. The gum and the lozenges are over the counter, which is good and bad because a lot of patients can't afford it and the insurance won't cover it. 1-800-QUIT-NOW could supply them with that. The reason why I'm bringing up the gum and lozenges is to make sure that your healthcare professionals listening to this instruct their patients properly how to use them. Mm. Don't masticate the gum and don't suck on the lozenge. What they're supposed to do is break the gum and park it on their gums or the lozenges, they could park it on their gums like chewing tobacco or put it on their tongue, let the nicotine really get into the venous system. If you chew it like regular gum, it just ends up getting into the saliva. You end up swallowing that. The gut doesn't like it. The gut won't absorb it. So that's the lessons I usually give them. The nasal spray, I usually have to order it and it can be pretty pricey, but patients tend to like it because the blast of nicotine is very fast. Within seconds, it gets into the system. The gum and the lozenges can take about up to four minutes. So what I usually ask the patient to do is, hey, you know you like to smoke after coffee. Let's reach for the gum. Let's see if you can substitute for it to give you that same feeling that you would have had anyway. Hmm. Over time, these relievers tend to be used less and less because the controller is really kicking in. And just like a good controller inhaler, they start using less and less of their rescue inhaler after that controller is really working for them in my analogy of asthmatic patients. So that's how I break it up. And it's not been uncommon where I have to step up therapy. I've had several patients that have been on Varenicleen and the patch with one or two relievers to use until they quit. And after they quit, I talk to them, let's extend what's working for you for an additional one to three months to prevent relapse. The further they keep, can keep going from their last cigarette, it's, it's not that they won't, the chances for relapse won't still be there. It just, we tend to decrease the probability over time. And that's what I'm very cognizant of to help them through that, especially if that's what they want. They really want to be off of cigarettes forever. I will say I do get some patients who just want to be off of it for a short time so they can get a surgery. I work with them. Whatever they want of me, I'm happy to help. But as long as a person has insight and capacity, they can make whatever judgment they see fit for them. But I tell all the patients I see in clinic, I'm your smoking doctor until you fire me. One thing that came up for me a couple of times was, have you had patients that propose trying to use vaping as their sort of replacement therapy? And what do you say to that? What are the counterpoints and is there ever a role for it? Yeah. So one of the things we battle constantly is the conversation around electronic cigarettes. And again, I default to if you have insight and capacity in what this product can do for you. If you want to use it, that's fine, but don't use it because you think you're quitting smoking. You're just trading one for another. The conversations about the relative risk reduction, the challenge is the science to argue that isn't really there. We know it has many toxins in the actual electronic cigarette. Are those toxins more dangerous than the combustible cigarettes? I think that's time will tell us, but there's no reason to think of a plausible answer saying, yes, they are just as bad, especially because the electronic cigarette smoker, their smoking mechanics tend to be a little bit different than a typical combustible user, where a lot of those combustible users tend to have short puffs, 
short inhalation holes. Electronic e-cigarette users can do more aggressive smoking, really deep inhalation. So those toxins tend to get in more distal parts of the lungs. So what I tell every patient is if you want to use an electronic cigarette, you can as long as you recognize it's still bad. This isn't quitting smoking. You've just quit traditional cigarettes for something else. That's it. And that something else is still bad. So that's what I want them to be understanding of. So I don't want them to give them a false reality because that will break my heart, right? Medicine, not to sound ageist, I felt like medicine let down a big generation of people who were smokers. And we've known since 1948, smoking causes cancer. And we didn't act on it in an aggressive fashion. And now we're dealing with those consequences. So I wouldn't be that aggressive with the electronic cigarettes. They're not good. If you want to smoke it, smoke and recognize that it is still bad for you. And it's not safer than a cigarette. I don't buy that. And you can come up with whatever reasons you have, but it's still something bad. I say this because that relative risk conversation still doesn't tell you the absolute risk it poses on an individual using it. And you may trade one toxin for something else. And that other toxin can still be just as bad for your health as a traditional combustible. So a patient comes to me, doc, I'm going to vape. I will say to them, okay, that's still smoking. You haven't stopped smoking. So if, if you want to continue smoking, you can. That's your judgment. If you want to quit, let's talk about the strategy. And actually, I will say to them, if you want to use that cigarette while you use these other medications, it's, to me, it's no different than continuing your new ports if you had that as you start weaning yourself off. Mm-hmm. That's fine. But they must recognize it, that isn't my strategy to get them off of cigarettes. To me, that's exchanging a new port for a Pall Mall. That's it. That makes sense. And what you're saying about the mechanics, it really resonates with me because the idea that if it's just a, if it's a vapor that's not hot from the fire of the combustion, then of course it's going to be more comfortable for them to inhale it more deeply. And that hadn't occurred to me before, but that does sound like it presents a whole new set of problems. And one of the things that I think is important that I always tried to convey to patients is the nicotine itself is dangerous. I think we spent a lot of time with the truth campaign and everything talking about the tar and all the other chemicals. So people presumably thought, well, hey, this is fewer chemicals. It must be better, right? But it sounds like it's far from the truth. Right. And 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 fewer still doesn't mean safer, right? It yeah. just still doesn't convey the absolute risk. If I, the analogy I've always used is, you know, if, if I said I created a weapon that's safer than a nuclear bomb, you would probably still say, well, you, that's a big spectrum, right? right? You still got to tell me what that means. Questions, And yeah. a lot of the evidence they tend to use to say, well, the chemicals are safe. My frustration is they come from the acronym GRASS, the generalized recognized as safe. It's uh, created by the FDA. Hmm. Right. So those substances that they claim are safe, those are all meant for digestion through the oral intake. We have hmm. no idea how they impact the lungs. And it's a different construct from the epithelial cells to the anatomy of it in and of itself. So I, I don't, I just want people to be transparent and honest. Mm-hmm. E-cigarettes are just a different form of smoking. Take it at it, take that in. That's fine. Don't try to make them believe they're doing some health or a healthier thing. They're not. No different than filters were seen as healthy back in the 60s after the expose of cancer and smoking. Filter didn't do anything for uh, to make a cigarette safer. If you remove that filter, whatever you breathe in that the filter is supposed to keep out, you will just cough it back out or breathe it back out. It didn't do much. There was no changes. That's all. That's all I plead with all my patients. If you want to use e-cigarettes, it's still bad for you, and I'm still going to work to get you off of it. And you're right. It still has nicotine. 
or nicotine-like products mm. that will still do the same addictive property and so forth. Yeah. Well, have you noticed any patterns in how people are getting started with tobacco use? Because that seems the big thing yeah. to me. I, I totally understand the loop once somebody's had their first cigarette. Right. But what doesn't make quite sense to me is how people pick it up the first time. I know, especially with so much out there saying, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke. And the best that I can come up with is the contextual relationship neighborhoods have to human beings who live in those neighborhoods. So in Baltimore City, the poorest neighborhoods, the most disadvantaged neighborhoods have the highest concentration of stores who sell tobacco, Hmm. right? If you go to Roland Park, you won't find a single tobacco selling store, right? Not a single pharmacy or CVS, whoever sells tobacco these days, not there. Hmm. If you go to Sandtown in West Baltimore, if you go to the Drew Hill area, there is a cluster of retailers who sell tobacco. Hmm. So in your most disadvantaged neighborhoods, there's not a lot of other economic competition. Tobacco is a big one that gets a lot of revenue. So if you have tobacco planted in these neighborhoods where it is hard from a transportation component to leave the neighborhoods to go somewhere else, if that's all you see in your neighborhood, you're more likely to be smoking. And we've shown that in some of our studies that we put out that the contextual relationship of a neighborhood, more abundant tobacco stores more likely that you're going to be smoking. Actually, one of our studies recently showed that women who are pregnant, if they live in areas with a high concentration of tobacco store retailers, they're more likely to stay smoking through their pregnancy. Mm. So that's the best that I can come up with. And by the way, those disadvantaged neighborhoods, high poverty-stricken neighborhoods, right? that, that is a, an understanding of a gap between the haves and the have-nots between where the tobacco is accessible. And it's also planted in places that are high in minorities. Mm -hmm. So the African-American communities have a lot more retailers who sell tobacco versus white uh, or communities that are predominantly white. So that's one of the reasons, in my opinion, not the only reason, but one of the main drivers that people pick up smoking is just the access to it. It's readily available. It's there and so forth. We can easily solve the tobacco problem if we made it impossible for people to access it, right? We could solve it. And I'm done. And that's great. I would love to be out of a business. Like I'm not advocating for my work, but my frustration is tobacco is in the most vulnerable populations, Mm -hmm. right? In a sense of the communities it's located, impacting the most disadvantaged neighborhoods and impacting people who later on in life don't have the resources, not only to get them off of cigarettes, but to deal with the consequences on their health from cigarettes. And that kills me. It frustrates me so much. I'm containing my anger at the moment. But that's why I think uh, I love coming today to talk about this on a podcast, just kind of as a call to arms for all of us to do more for our patients who smoke, walk through their journey with them. This shouldn't be only on their shoulders. We should march with them and help them get off of it. So that's that's why I'm excited to share this conversation. But the contextual relationship, I think that's one of the important aspects of why smoking is picked up, especially in more disadvantaged and minority populations. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. It reminds me of a discussion I had with Dr. Paul Nestat on an earlier podcast about suicide. And I'm thinking about just this idea of access to harmful behaviors. I mean, he's saying that the evidence shows that you are far less likely to use violent means for uh, suicide and far less likely to complete a suicide if there are even trivial barriers to getting a hold of those things. And then here you are talking about people have next to no barrier whatsoever. I mean, if you get the idea into your head 
to start smoking cigarettes and you have, I don't have no idea how much cigarettes cost now, like what, five, ten, twenty dollars? Right. So cigarettes are expensive, but keep in mind, it's cigarettes, right? So it's a cigarette tax. That was another clever ploy by the tobacco lobbyists. So other tobacco products don't have that same tax. The reason why that's important is because in Baltimore City, for our healthcare professionals or practice here, you'll probably see a lot of black and molds everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. These kind of like cigar-like substances. Yes, cigarellos, I think yep. they call them. So the way you can change the property of a cigarette to a cigar or a cigarello, it's really the the cigarette wrapping paper, the wrapping paper around it, right? So cigars and cigarellos have less pores. The porosity is less, right? So when uh-huh. you take in a drag, less air gets into that cigarello or cigarette or cigar, less air coming in, less dilution, more high concentrated nicotine. I say that's, that's important because people won't use cigarettes a lot in Baltimore. They'll use more addictive tar-infused properties like cigars or cigarellos. Wow. And it's even harder to get them to quit smoking because that amount of nicotine they're getting in, you know, I, I had one patient, he smoked Westports. Westports are essentially cigarellos. He smokes two packs a day. And I t- looked him in the eyes and I said, I, it will take me a year for you to see even the beginnings of you stopping smoking. Hmm. Um, and you understood that and he's ready to embark with me. But Anyway, I didn't mean to take uh, that into different property, but being more cognizant of the gravity of our enemy. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's constant forces at work. I know when my dad was still smoking, he was rolling his own for a while to get around that cigarette tax. That was a big thing back up in Michigan. Yeah. The economics will not stop them from smoking. Yeah. They will still seek out smoking, right? If you ask a person how much you spend on cigarettes, they may tell you not a lot. A lot of it is because they get it from somewhere else, right? Mm-hmm. They get it from their friend who will gladly hand them a pack for five bucks, right? They have other means. Or they'll find cigarette substitutes like the cigarellos, the black and milds out there and so forth. People will still smoke. The The tax itself doesn't deter them. It does in maybe very affluent areas where there isn't a lot of cigarettes there. But for the disadvantaged neighborhoods, they're still going to go out and buy tobacco-related products. Yeah, I mean the problem is when once an addiction takes hold, it's completely co-opted your motivation. Yep. I mean it's like – you know, keeping food away from you is not going to stop you from obtaining food. Like no matter how much it gets, eventually you're just going to steal it before you like allow yourself to starve. And it's the same drives just being yeah, no, in a different direction. You're hundred percent. And that's why when people are like, Oh, think of the money you'll save. I'm like, that's not like, that's not a motivation for them. Like, do you know the benefit they get or they feel they get from a cigarette? That's what's constantly driving them. Yeah. The amount of money they'll save isn't a priority for them versus what a tobacco product will give them. So that's why we have to be cognizant of that and, and challenge that. We've approached this question from a couple of angles so far, but are there specific myths that you've come across repeatedly with respect to smoking and vaping that you would really like to dispel to our so, listeners? So I think the main important one is this concept about relative risk. Relative risk, do not confuse it with absolute risk. Mm. We still don't know the absolute risk an electronic cigarette poses to a human being. It has a lot of toxins in it. The smoking mechanics are a little bit differently from a regular combustible. In my opinion, the plausibility of it still being incredibly dangerous is there. To link it to cancer, to link it to these long-term outcomes, the challenge is it's going to take time. I mean, cigarettes took 20-plus years for epidemiology in 1948 to say, yes, it's linked to cancer. But the cat's already out of the bag by that point. Mm-hmm. So. Are we going to wait for 20 years before we can review our epidemiological work and say, oh, yes, there's the link? I take complete um, 
I, I take an understanding that given these toxins, knowing a lot of them are carcinogens, I always tell my patients the plausibility of forming cancer is high. The plausibility of forming emphysema, COPD, and so forth is very high with electronic cigarettes. Mm. I want them to have that insight because as long as they have that, the judgment's up to them, right? That's it. I just don't want them to be fooled with, oh, it's a safer health habit. There's nothing safe about it. Yeah. It's a different one, and the absolute risk is, in my opinion, just as grave as a regular combustible. Yeah, and I mean, just thinking through the physiology, the effects on the cardiovascular system have to be just as strong, if not more so. Yeah, uh, and that evidence well. is coming out. Yeah. Uh, the other myth that I will say is when patients come to me and tell me this, uh, this drug didn't work, like the nicotine patch didn't work, the Chantex didn't work, the, the Wellbutrin bupropion didn't work, what I will say to the healthcare professionals out there is ask them why it didn't work. Nine out of 10 times, they'll tell you, oh, I tried it for a week and nothing happened. And you look at them in the eye and say, okay, so it didn't work because we needed a longer time. Mm. If it had side effects like hallucinations and so forth, that's different, right? That, that's a side effect, no different than a side effect from a medication. And you will stop that because the risk outweigh the benefit. Yeah. So talk to them. The biggest myth that they have is because in their minds, they're having this sabotage strategy of wanting to, wanting to quit, but at the same time telling you why it's not going to work. And you walk through that with them and say, okay, implementation strategies. Just start the medication. We're going to touch base in a couple of days. Tell me how it's doing. Touch base in another couple of days. Tell me how it's doing. Keep at it. Keep at it. That's it. Walk them through each goal. Congratulate them when they did two weeks of a patch. That's awesome. Don't focus on their smoking right away. Congratulate them. Congratulate them at the four-week mark that they're still doing it and still compliant because they're getting there. So myth number two is these agents can work. Just be patient with the patient. Give them realistic timelines. Realistic timelines, that's very important. So they know when to expect to see changes and then ultimately when to expect to quit. That seems really useful. The idea of setting these expectations seems like it must be something that can really move the process along and build a good alliance because it. I think it must be really frustrating for patients and, and people trying to quit to hear these messages and then not really be given realistic expectations about how much it's going to suck, basically. Yep. And the last part I'll say is myth number three, the cold turkey conversation. I have nothing against if people want to approach stopping altogether. And that kudos to them. And I, I would say, good luck. I will still do the chronic touch points to see how you're doing. Mm-hmm. In the back of my mind, I know something that's hard to, and I try to convey it at each clinical setting. One of the biggest risk factors to help someone quit cold turkey depends on how addicted they are to begin with. So that's why I go over the smoking phenotype. Like if you smoked one cigarette a day, two puffs of it for all your life, you'll probably be very good to quit easily, cold turkey, right? Because your smoking phenotype isn't an aggressive one. But for those who have an aggressive smoking phenotype, the ones who take more than 10 cigarettes a day and so forth and many puffs and smoke the most highly concentrated nicotine products, what I tell them about quitting cold turkey Really, honestly, a lot of it has to do with their genes. There are good studies out there that showcase people who have variants in the CYP2A6 enzyme in their liver that metabolizes nicotine, especially those that are called slow metabolizers. Those are patients who really can walk away and quit cold turkey because the nicotine that, and the way they smoked is governed by how quickly they metabolize nicotine. If you metabolize it really quickly, you want the next cigarette to get in you, and that's going to fuel your addiction. Yeah. If you metabolize very slowly, you're not going to smoke that much. And walking away is actually really easy. So those people who go out there and say, yeah, quick cold turkey, kudos to you. I would never take that away. 
But I want people to be cognizant that there could be bigger forces internally in you, intrinsic forces, that may have helped you that will set others into a disadvantage. So that mind over body, that mind power, potentially may have worked to some extent, but you probably had a genotype that really helped you expedite quitting. So that's my myth number three. Cold turkey can work. We can send off our genes. It's just not that cost effective, especially because the smoking genes are very complicated. I'm giving you the bigger one for the metabolism, but there's other complex ones too. So that's my third myth. So myth number one about the absolute risk of e-cigarettes. Myth number two about the chronicity of the medications to work. Myth three, quitting cold turkey. A lot of it has to depend on your genotype. Uh, That's a really good thing to talk about because on so many behavioral topics, we get to this old idea about essentially weakness being like you're either somehow morally or mentally strong enough to do it or not. And I think that idea is frustrating to a lot of people struggling with these things because it's just not that simple. And there are factors like genes where it's like, this is not the same difficulty for everybody. Yeah. And I say this because the more you can walk with that person in their shoes around quitting smoking, I'm telling you that patient doctor relationship gets built beautifully. They believe in you and believe in your message. They will be one of the most compliant patients you've ever had. And more than anything, they appreciate that you understand that struggle. You understand the gravity of the enemy that we're trying to beat. No different than we know diabetes, high blood pressure, HIV, fill in the blank of any other communicable and non-communicable disease. We know the prognosis, the spectrum, and so forth. If we know that about tobacco, a lot of our patients who smoke will start being reignited to work without the doctor-patient relationship. So that's it. Those are kind of the seeds out there that I'd love to plant. Awesome. Let's see. So uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about is, you know, nobody exists in a vacuum, right? And almost everyone trying to quit has some family, friends in the picture. What can people in the orbit of a person trying to quit do to support that? Yes. So what I always tell everyone is, again, uh, you always know your loved one best, but do your, do what you can to not come off in a judgmental way. No different than if they had cancer, you're not screaming at them and being judgmental about it. You work with them, you help them through it, you get them to their doctor's appointments, you be supportive of them, that's it. So patients who have family members who smoke, I always invite that person who's gonna come to my clinic, I give them the call the night before, make sure that they're coming, and I'm like, bring in a loved one. And I tell that loved one, I'm like, you have to be supportive. Don't get angry at him, don't get mad at him. It's We understand the gravity of the disease, work with him, be encouraging, right? Stress, number one cause of a lot of smoking or relapse. What causes stress and someone's screaming at you, right? The best, what they're going to do is run to a cigarette immediately. So work with them, right? If you have a loved one who is smoking, just go ahead and talk to them. Like, hey, let me get you to a doctor. Let him or her talk to you about smoking cessation strategies and whatever they lay out, I'm going to be supportive, right? I'm going to be there to make sure you're taking your meds, making sure that you understand if you trip and relapse, great, let's pick you right back up and start this journey again. That's it. I say this because tobacco knows how to get to our patients, right? If you ever look at their marketing schemes, their messages, they're one of bliss. They're one of like beautiful people smoking. It looks great. It's so inviting to do. Our messages are like, look at this black lung. Look at this diseased heart. It's a scare tactic that may work to keep people from starting to smoke, Mm -hmm. 
But those who are already addicted, that message isn't meaningful to them. If anything, they get upset, stressed, and they go back to smoking. Mm -hmm. So for those listeners out there who have a loved one who smoke, just be supportive. Be supportive. Take them to a doctor's appointment. Help them out. That's, that's, treat them like a human being. That's what I would say. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think when people come off as judgmental, they're uh, coming from a place of trying to help. But, yeah. but I think pointing out the idea that it is a coping skill for these people, um, that's got to be, it's got to backfire in almost yeah. every and, case. And every person who smokes knows smoking is bad. There isn't a single person who's come to McLean and looked at me and been shocked. Whoa, smoking is bad. And that's why I say like the ambivalence they face of this world of wanting to quit and not wanting to quit at the same time, coexisting, yelling at them or being angry at them really is going to reinforce, well, you know what? Cigarettes never yelled at me. Like that's a, I'm going to go back to that friend of mine, work with them, help them with a mutual goal and be there with them, supportive. Great. Um, one other question that was uh, interesting to me is, so... I know we've been trying to get people to quit smoking for quite some time. Have you seen any big changes in how we're approaching this as uh, a field, as physicians? So I, I, it, the bias I could have is because since I'm big into smoking cessation, tobacco treatment strategies, I tend to cluster with other people who do this. Yeah. But when I go out and give my talks, right, for either CME credit or lectures, I get heartbroken because a lot of people get so surprised at my conversation, right? Recent med school graduates learning about the cigarette anatomy, um, having people recognize, oh my gosh, I should look at the medications in a dichotomized fashion between controller and reliever, understanding the gravity of nicotine addiction and how nicotine clearance plays a role in, in quitting strategies and relapse. I see all this because I don't feel like there's enough of a change of understanding cigarettes. Mm and tobacco, and smoking, and nicotine addiction. And I see this with a heart that's broken because it kills our patients. Yeah. It kills more patients than violence, the gun violence. It kills more patients than opioids every year. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't take on the same kind of attention that, say, learning about HIV does. It doesn't take on the same attention that learning about the bacterial structure of Staph aureus does. I graduated medical school in 2010. I don't think I'm that old, but when I took additional courses with a great mentor, Frank Leone, at, up at Philadelphia mm -hmm. to become a certified tobacco treatment specialist, I was in shock of how much we just did not know. Yeah. And does that mean we have to know everything? No, but enough to be cognizant to not say, call a quit line and leave it at that. Shift the responsibility solely onto the patient. We don't do that with any other disease. So you ask a great question. Do I think times have changed? I think there's a lot more people yelling loudly to healthcare professionals to feel more responsible for this. Yes. I still think we haven't changed how we view patients who smoke and we still think it's on them versus, no, I should manage it like I manage blood pressure. Yeah. So I don't think that mentality has changed. The campaigns like Truth out there and the American Lung Association, I think they do a great job to get kids and new persons from actually picking up smoking and that's great. That's awesome. But the electronic cigarette campaigns is undoing a lot of those messages. I yeah. mean, the rate of e-cigarette users and kids is exponentially high, where now pediatricians are sending them to my clinic, help them get off e-cigarettes. So long story short, this is what I would say. I, I think some of our messages have gotten amplified. The healthcare world needs a lot more information. 
to quit to help people learn how to help their patients quit smoking. Mm-hmm. I love that I'm a tobacco treatment specialist, but everyone should have this knowledge. Yeah. And then the other component is we cannot sleep on the tobacco company. The fact that e-cigarettes have come up and are now the epidemic that we are facing, the tobacco company, again, it proves that there are three chess piece moves ahead of us. And now we're just playing catch up where we're sitting here having to say, no, they're probably bad to people saying, well, there's studies in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed it got them off cigarettes. And I'm like reminding them, yes, it got them off cigarettes. It just got them on something else, right? Because they're still doing that. A year later. Oxycodone will get people off heroin sometimes. Right, (laughs) right. So, no, that's and that's a good analogy. And that's what I try to tell them. It's You still don't understand the absolute risk. You're still trading one bad thing for something else. And so, yes. So your question is a a great one. I think we all have to internally look at it ourselves. If we want to keep medicine as a public trust, what are we doing for the number one preventable cause of many diseases? I got one off the wall question just because uh, of my own personal interest in the uh, BPRU studies, and the first of which was on cigarette cessation with psilocybin, Matt Johnson's article at this point. Do you have any thoughts on whether you are thinking that that's likely to become a part of the landscape in the next 10 or 20 years? Does that for, for your listeners, do you want to define? Sure, sure, sure. Sorry, let me that. back up. All right. Because you and I know what's going yeah, on, yeah. but like, yeah, tell your listeners. All right. So listeners, there's a group here at Johns Hopkins Bayview. It's led by Dr. Roland Griffiths and one of the uh, more senior researchers, Matt Johnson, did this article and it showed that people were able to quit cigarette smoking using psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy and by using something like two sessions of psilocybin treatment over a period of, what, a couple of months, they were able to stay off tobacco with something like 70 to 80% at six months, which you can tell me better than I can is like unheard of. Yeah, no, that's... So a couple of things that I think the smoking literature always needs to emphasize a limitation. If we had for instance, a cancer trial, and you're like, this worked, this agent worked, killed 95% of all the cancer. Yeah. You'll probably look at me like, all right, how bad was the cancer to start off with? And if you find out you only dealt with stage one cancers, yeah. like, well, yeah, I mean, your disease severity wasn't that bad. Mm. Smoking phenotypes is very hard to capture. So what I say looking at all these trials and so forth, those who don't really aggressively capture the type of smoker someone is, I will enjoy reading it, but that's always going to be a big limitation. So that trial that came out, fantastic. I believe it will probably work for certain smoking phenotypes. But since I don't know the type of smokers, because they didn't go into that much detail. And in the clinical setting, right, all we ask is, what's your packs per year? Which to me blows my mind that it's a clinical tool because it's meant to be an epidemiological tool for assessment about cancer, right? Mm -hmm. You smoke two packs five years or five packs for two years, you get the same number, but those are two different smokers. So- I say all this because it's. I enjoy all trials. The caution I have is if it didn't go into what type of smoking phenotype, it's still hard for me to say who this will work for and who it will not. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the only two cents I'll add to this is let's learn who these patients are. Because, again, if you biasly recruit patients with a CYP2A6 variant that makes them a slow metabolizer, yeah, you'll have a lot of great outcomes showing that your interventions worked. Yeah. But you may have worked on a very biased population. That makes sense. And I think that 
just brings the to light the importance of defining the problem. I see that in all kinds of research where, uh, like, uh, I've done a little bit of work with trying to data mine the EMR, and that's a nightmare in psychiatry because the number of times we throw just garbage diagnoses on the EMR for the sake of the workflow in the hospital. Like if somebody's in the emergency department, you don't know for sure what they've got. They might be psychotic and you might just have to pick one of the top three psychotic illnesses because you, uh, that's your best guess at the time. But that's not useful if you're trying to come back as a researcher six months later or six years later and say, well, what happens to people with bipolar disorder right. if it's an utterly meaningless thing? So that's an interesting thing to keep in mind. Of course. Because, yeah, somebody who's got one toe in the tobacco use world and they're smoking, like you said, a cigarette a day or don't we classify people as tobacco users with like five cigars a year or something insane like that? Oh, it's the data of even have we captured it as a healthcare system is horrible. One very quick study that I did retrospectively this year, not published yet, but a third of the patients with COPD were inappropriately classified of what type of smoker they were. They were labeled and the majority of the error was, oh, they're a former smoker. And then the note next to it says, they quit today. I'm like, that's not, that's not, they quit today because they're in the hospital, <laughs> right? They're, there's nothing to trigger them to smoke. Yeah. And I say this because if you inappropriately label them, you understand this from the psychiatric world or, or just general medicine. If you inappropriately label someone, you're either keeping them from resources or giving them the wrong resources. Yeah. And that's the worst thing that we can do. And especially if you label them as a former smoker, that won't ding us to identify them, to allocate resources to them. And suddenly they'll go back out and they'll pick up smoking again. Yeah, and then there's issues of stigma and all these things right, too. Right, Like I've known people who've just for some reason as chart lore, they got clicked at some point that they were a smoker and it had never been true. Yeah. But, but trying to get that corrected and... Oh, it's um, night and day. Yeah. yeah. If we can remove that stigma, these are human beings. Yeah. That's it. We're all people. Let's just be professionals with them and work with them. Yeah. And I think that that's going to take a, a cultural push, but that's something that I'm very interested in as a psychiatrist because we are not kind to our mentally unwell yeah. population yeah. as a species. Yeah. <laughs> so. Understood. I think that's about all the questions I had on this particular topic. Did you have any closing thoughts? No, I think all my thoughts were laid out. It's been fantastic. Anytime I can talk about this, I love, I try to maintain my passion around the politics of the tobacco world versus what we should be doing and could be doing more of. But I invite your listeners, hopefully you have an availability of somehow reaching out to me if they'd like to. Yeah, definitely. But I, I invite everyone to rethink how they're approaching smoking cessation with all their patients Go about it in the uh, pro-smoker, anti-smoking mentality. Mm -hmm. You're there for that human being. You'll help them through it without any judgment and implement a chronic disease model. To me, that's how we reaffirm medicine as a public trust around tobacco. Thank you. And yeah, on the subject of reaching out, would you like to tell our listeners how they can find you on social media and these kinds of things and see what you're up to? Yeah, of course. So my Twitter handle is... My first name, 21, so Panagis21, P-A-N-A-G-I-S-21. If you have questions, comments, concerns, you can actually email us at tobacco at jhmi.edu. Again, tobacco at jhmi.edu. It's actually how we get a lot of patrons to refer to us. Nice. It sounds like that's easy to remember for people. There you go. All right. Well, Dr. G, thank you very much for being with us, and we're looking forward to getting the word out. Excellent. Thank you for letting me be here. 
Have you ever listened to the Humanity Against Disease podcast and wondered how to get in touch with us? Have you ever tried to contact us by carrier pigeon and failed? Well, we have news for you. You can reach us by a couple of different methods. So we got our electronic mail address, which is againstdisease at gmail.com. We have a Twitter handle, which is at againstdisease. We've got an Instagram, which is also at Against Disease. And we have a Facebook, which the easiest way to find us is to type Humanity Against Disease into the search tab and like us or message us about anything. Mm -hmm. And if you want to see our regular website, which is updated a little less often, but has a lot of the pillars, mission statements, et cetera, that is humanityagainstdisease.com.